Welcome back, everyone, to the third episode of uh, Throughout the Steering Wheel. I'm Ben. And I'm Luke. And I'm Sam. And today we're going to be focusing on China and talking about sort of China generally. Uh, They're coming up in the news recently in regards to um, their conflicts with India. So we're just going to be talking about sort of general theory, their rise, maybe what we expect in the near and long-term future and what we can draw from from past conflicts with them and maybe even the the Cold War, considering... um, a similar sort of great power conflict style. Yeah, but I think we're we're really enjoying Ben's domestic rants before we get into our main topic. So we're going to throw it up to Ben before we jump into China to talk about former national security advisor, who, regardless of what you think, has a pretty dope mustache. Probably the best mustache in the United States. It's a so. fantastic mustache. Yeah, yeah I've, I've had a hard time reconciling that with just about every other thing John Bolton's done is in his entire life in public office. Um, he's putting out this sort of like Bob Woodward style tell all book. Is that what it was? Fire and Fury, Bob Woodward, whatever. Similar to the Fire and Fury book. I might be mixing up the author's name. That is totally um, self-promotional, self-aggrandizing about John Bolton, not about justice, not about actually affecting change in our current administration. So we just wanted to put that out there to say, do not buy his fucking book. Um, read the coverage of it. Read or Listen to the Pod Save the World episode about it. It's slanderous. It's probably not 100% true. Um, it is not really revelatory of anything we didn't know about Trump or the Trump administration to begin with. If anything, it's relatively damning of John Bolton himself. Um, and I am just generally ridiculously upset about the sort of coverage he's getting as being some sort of investigative help about the Trump administration. We know what they are. We know what they do. We know that he was there to advance his anti-Iran agenda. Um, Do not buy the book. John Bolton is not a hero. And I hope we never hear or see from him again. End of rant. I mean, yeah, keep in mind, this guy almost got us into a full-blown conflict with Iran back in January. And now he's, he's some sort of hero. So thank you, Ben. That was kind of like therapy. Yeah, it has been um, really helpful for me. I think the text I sent you guys is that I want to rip his mustache off and use it as a bookmark and beat him over the head with his book, um, which is sort of how I still feel, but it's simmering a little bit. Well, well, Bolton, correct me, Bolton was a national security advisor in January, but it was that kind of Bolton's kind of thinking escalating with Iran, which has persisted throughout the Trump administration. Uh, that did almost get us into a conflict with Iran. Yep. Um, but anyway, uh, we're going to stop Ben there because he could take our entire episode up with domestic rants. Um, we're talking about China's rise today, and we are going to start with the more theoretical approach before we jump into India, China, uh, Hong Kong, South China Sea, you name it. And basically, the short and skinny of it is Graham Allison wrote a really good book. He's a renowned international relations scholar and his book is called the city's trap and he looks at conflicts throughout history dating back uh, to athens and sparta and says when a rising power is challenging an existing status quo power more often than not the conflict is war um, so if you buy into this thesis we should be concerned about what we're seeing in international relations today china is rising at a very fast pace and uh, especially now during the coronavirus when everyone is kind of down and focused on domestic issues China has been making moves. Chaos is a ladder um, from what we're seeing. So let's talk about some of those issues. Yeah. So 
to preface a little bit with what's been going on in the news, specifically in regards to India and China in the past two weeks, um, which in itself is very um, scary if you understand the fact that both powers have nuclear weapons. We need to take a look at China's overarching foreign policy um, diplomacy strategy in the past, um, probably the past 10 years, but really coming becoming more apparent in, in recent years. And this has been labeled um, in the past two years specifically as wolf warrior diplomacy. So wolf warriors, um, the wolf warrior um, trilogy is a uh, Chinese extremely um, hit um, film um, saga about PLA spec ops. Um, China's highest grossing film in 2017 was Wolf Warrior 2. And this, I mean, extremely propagandist films, um, extremely nationalist, has been picked up as the logo for all of Chinese diplomacy currently, um, as they continue to be much more aggressive. And the gist of it is, we're not going to punch first, but if we feel like we're insulted, we're going to hit back and we're going to hit back hard. So as that um, relates to India, there's been lots of skirmishes in the um, Chinese, uh, the Tibetan Indian border since China annexed Tibet in um, 70 years ago. Um, there was conflict in 1962 in the same exact place that it's occurring now. Uh, this this conflict started when India alleged that one of their officers was pushed off a cliff. Um, this resulted in a direct conflict with Chinese forces in the area, um, and it became very bloody. However, both sides have a non-firearm use policy, so the violence was largely with bats that were covered in barbed wire and nails, leaving 20 Indian soldiers dead. Um, this is incredible. Sam, why should the everyday American care about this kind this of conflict? Is, this, is, this is extremely important because um, these are two hegemons in the area. And it's just an incredible liability if these two were to break out into a larger conflict. And China's argument is that they don't recognize the demarcation line between India and Tibet because it was set up by colonial powers. This guy, Sir Arthur Henry McMahon, English Foreign Secretary of India in 1914 set up this line between China uh, between India and Tibet, and China doesn't recognize that. And India um, feels very strongly that China's impinging on its land. So this could blow into something much larger if it's not contained. And it follows along China's China's thinking that they have been pushed again. They have been insulted, and they have to push back. And right, the stakes of conflict here in China, generally not saying anything particularly astute here, but have a bunch of nuclear weapons, India too, um, rising powers, we've already said, and also an increasingly serious economic threat, right? We've seen in the coronavirus pandemic, their control over um, medical and pharmaceutical supply chains, which is another way in which you could sort of conceive of this warfare as being only in economic terms. And that possibly leading to sort of uh, militant escalation. Um, and so the, the stakes here are incredibly high, whether in regards to U.S., China, India, China, or when you combine all three. Mm, a couple of weeks ago, China was making moves in Hong Kong as well. Ben, you want to go and talk about that a little? Yeah. I think 
that would be more important to the everyday American. Yeah, and so Hong Kong is is um, it's the two two systems one nation is is that what it's called? Um, that's that's Taiwan. But okay, sorry yeah. about that. But either way, they're both sort of American yeah. liabilities in that they're beacons of democracy that are much like West Berlin in the uh, Cold War, entirely indefensible. Right? That if China and realistically not that important to the United States, right? That like West Berlin was a huge, huge black eye or bloody nose to the Soviets, much like these democratic bastions of Taiwan and Hong Kong are to China, but we could not, and that's not a matter of opinion, it's a matter of fact, could not defend them conventionally. And in regards to Taiwan, not Hong Kong, um, we do have an extended deterrence relationship over them. So that's another way in which China could exploit um, a, a fragile network that that is extended deterrence and expand and as in all likelihood they intend to do because they are such um, black eyes or bloody noses as I've already said. Right. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, China. Uh, I don't think they've passed the law yet. That's why there are protests in uh, Hong right. Kong. But China has made clear that it is willing to use uh, mainland uh, security forces in. Um, Hong Kong, and just for some context, when you know uh, Great Britain handed over Hong Kong, uh, it was supposed to remain a special administrative re- administrative region till twenty forty seven. Forty seven, yeah, with basic liberties. I believe they have their own constitution. So, as Ben was saying, it is a very democratic system, and it is concerning to see China um, making moves and infringing upon uh, Hong Kong. So. And I think what what we're seeing in large part with Hong Kong and in the India and China conflict is that China's really taking advantage of the COVID pandemic as kind of a uh, just facade or or just a, a covering for for making these more aggressive moves in different areas as people are focused on different things and as countries are really focused on domestic concerns. China is really taking advantage of this this moment in time to kind of exp- you keep continue with this aggressive um defensive policy so, so they they code it in the fact that it's defensive they're not going to strike first um but the language is very um iffy and it can be it can be used in a lot of different ways and that's what we're kind of seeing um with china and especially we we can see that in the south china sea as as China argues that it's their right, they need it for defensive purposes. But in a lot of eyes, it, it can be seen as very aggressive tactics, and it's scaring a lot of the nations um, that also have stake in the South China Sea. Yeah, and I, I'm not particularly concerned with soft power when we talk about um, international relations in general. But like with Trump at the helm of the United States and and doing such a poor job on coronavirus, and then China doing the opposite. I mean, that's another way in which they are ascending and we are descending that um, we've blundered in Iraq and Afghanistan since the early 2000s. We've blundered on coronavirus now. We've shrunk away from NATO under Trump. And so our international standing um, is is um, depleted compared to where it was And China's is rising. And so that is, on, on the other hand, China has been particularly aggressive and, and um, deceitful in a lot of their international relations, particularly in Latin America and, and China. But nonetheless, their standing uh, morally is rising, whereas ours is is 
um, declining, which is another element of this. But like I said, this is more so concerned with the hard power elements of it, but worth mentioning for sure. Yeah, and we're, we're talking about all this aggressive posturing, but something that's been flying under the radar is uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative. I was reading a really great article the other day, I forget the author, who the author is, so I can't give him credit. But essentially, he argues that China has two main uh, avenues to pursue uh, becoming a world power, uh, whatever, whatever you want to call it. And basically, is you could see these moves inside China Sea dominating the Pacific. That's the route that the United States took on their way to hegemony. And uh, the other route, which they're not mutually exclusive, is this more soft power economic campaign to make Beijing the epicenter of uh, global economics. And I think that's really, really concerning. I don't know when the end date is supposed to be. I think it's a several decades long project. But what we're seeing is China pursuing massive infrastructure projects, railroads, bridges. Uh, Huawei is doing their communications uh, projects in Africa, the Middle East, Southeast China. And what we could see in 10, 20 years is a world or a an economic system that all flows toward Beijing. And that's really concerning. And like one element of that too, that it, I think helps explain what Luke is saying is that um, they're obviously not a democracy, China, and that makes them more agile and more aggressive and, and more so in both dimensions than the United States can be. Right. And so they can, the United States doesn't want to be putting these sub-Saharan African nations in debt traps, but the Chinese are fine with it, right? And we don't have a Huawei that expands our government surveillance network um, in the same way internationally. We have the NSA, that's a different can of worms. But um, they have um, Huawei and are intentionally expanding their 5G to improve their government surveillance into other countries. Um, and, and that's just another way in which um, democracies struggle compared to autocracies. Um, and when you talk about cybersecurity too, which is another element of, of this future warfare, the United States has, I believe, the highest rated offensive cyber warfare capabilities, but have considerably lower defensive capabilities um, when compared to a North Korea or a China or an Iran because of the state of civil liberties in, in, um, in autocracies versus democracies. Right. And, and as of now, China is the spending... Um, just behind the United States, we are still the um, largest spender in terms of our defense budget. But China is investing heavily in their military. Um, and that's something that in recent years has has continued to grow. And just to point out one more thing about this, this whole wolf warrior diplomacy and even connecting it to Luke's point about the Belt and Road Initiative in the MENA region and specifically Africa. The second wolf warrior film, these these nationalistic films being played in China um, that get a ton of attendance was set in an African country where the PLA um, soldiers were sent in to rescue Chinese civilians. So this just shows how pervasive this ideology is becoming in China of expanding, of, of growing its influence, of um, becoming a major player in a lot of parts of the world. And, and again, this is this type of like verbose statements and just, just kind of um, aggressive tactics we haven't really seen from China until, you know, post 2000 it's, and it's continuing to grow. Right. So let's, let's take this back to Graham Allison. Uh, hopefully we're not destined for war. I don't believe we're determinists in that way, but what should the United States be doing? I mean, I, as Ben was saying, I don't think any of us are comfortable 
comfortable with a world order run by Beijing. Um, Beijing definitely doesn't play by the rules, and there's significant grievances to be had with the with the government there. So how do we push back without getting into a full blown conflict with China? Um, hmm. My first two thoughts, or my first one, is in regards to the, the the supply chain stuff I mentioned, and you're hearing politicians on either side of the aisle in the U.S. mentioning that, right? That we need to be able to to develop those um, supply chains and economic supply chains on our own, so that way we're not at, at their mercy because um, this warfare might not be fully bloody. It might be cyber. It might be trade war stuff like that. And then the other one that I always come back to, and, and why I'm so frustrated with Trump in in many ways is our alliance network that you heard candidate Trump before he was elected talking about Japan and South Korea proliferating, right? And then we can't project power in the region. Um, He roundly rejected the TPP. And I know, Luke, um, you were mentioning this, that that was another way in which we increased our economic influence in the region. Um, And then by pulling out of it or roundly rejecting it, then we cede that same sort of economic influence to China. And so I think as we move closer towards this Allison Point of conflict, the one way in which we'd want to increase our deterrent potential is with strengthening our alliance networks. And I don't want to transition us into a NATO conversation, but there's a whole world of conversation there in which NATO works to promote the Western world order as opposed to just being a pure security arrangement. Um, but I always turn first to the alliance networks and, and using that as, as just a, a deterrent force. I don't know what you guys think of that. Yeah, I, I actually totally agree, um, Ben. And I think something that China is willing to do that we still um, have not shown is they're willing to work within some of these international systems within the UN and specifically UNCLOS, which is the UN um, charter on the law of the sea. And China has been a member of this and we have yet to because um, there's still a faction in um, our um, Congress that is just completely um, reluctant to um, ratify any multilateral treaties on the grounds that they erode U.S. sovereignty. Um, That's something Obama tried to to get us into unclose, um, and it didn't work, and Trump has still yet to ratify it. But this is a way that we could actually work within the system to push back against China, specifically in the South China Sea, and without us being in that, they can always point and say, why should we listen to you? You're not even a part of this. Um, so I think we need to take a more active stance in some of these these multilateral treaties or alliances. Um, and that's going to be a way to, to start putting some more pressure on China. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't think any of us are fans of Trump, but the sovereignty issue is significant. But I think the problem with Trump's foreign policies, he's withdrawn the United States from all these incredible multilateral deals, Paris Climate Accord, Iran Nuclear Deal, um, TPP, and he's promised us to get a better deal. And he hasn't done that in any of these cases. And he's creating voids that China is quickly filling. And, um, you know, if you're going to make this promise, if you're going to stick to the sovereignty argument, that's great. Uh, you know, those are valid arguments to an extent, but do something about it, get that better deal. And right now, as we've been talking about, you know, American power projections eroding as more time passes without any deals to be to be made. So, so Ben, I have, a, I have a question for you. We're just talking about tactics to, I guess, contain China. What do you think about sanctions? I know we've talked about this a little bit, but 
in regards to China, do you think they work? Do you think they're effective? It, and even if they're not, just the fact that we, we, if they do something to us we don't like and we put sanctions onto them, is that enough repercussions to incentivize them not to um, do stuff that would, that, that would anger us? Yeah. So I think sanctions are, are thorny because they often don't hurt the given regime. They hurt the people. And so what I will say to credit Trump is he has moved the national conversation on China to remind us that they truly are an adversary, right? Um, Obama's sort of like strategic engagement or openness, uh, I forget the name of the policy, I think eventually carried on too long and maybe was a good thought initially, but like I said, yeah, dragged on too long. And so I think sanctions would be a valuable tool if done multilaterally. So by weakening our ties with NATO, we have less of a chance of getting Western European support on those sanctions. And we saw when that happened with the Iran deal, the Iran deal collapsed um, when it was in that state of limbo after Trump pulled out, but Western Europe didn't. When they eventually did, because they didn't have the same incentive structure, um, they, they wouldn't follow with all the sanctions Trump had, right? So I think if we were to sanction in that way, um, it would need to be particularly multilateral, that we'd want a Japan, South Korea, Western Europe um, involved. And I kind of want to throw a question back at you guys. Another player in all of this is Russia. And Russia, in theory, would be open to countering China. I mean, they are historic enemies. They do not support each other. They share, I think, the second longest border in the world after U.S.-Canada. And Russia, in fact, um, we had this conversation in a couple of the classes I TA'd, doesn't necessarily have to be an adversary. And there's a whole bunch more nuance there with them continuing to try and hack our private sector to have access to our public sector. But there are ways in which there is potential for collaboration there to counter China. And I think that they are a necessary partner in any future sanctions. But I'd love to hear what you guys think on that, just because how thorny or fraught that might be, but how much potential there is at the same time. I haven't really thought about the Russia angle before. Um, I do know I was looking at the news. It seems like Putin is making some moves to uh, extend his rule beyond, I think, the next Russian uh, elections, 2022, maybe. But anyway, um, it's very likely if this goes through that we're going to have to deal with Vladimir Putin to contain China. And I don't know how that would look like because Trump's gotten a lot of flack for cozying up to Putin. And if we do want to, if any bold leader, Democrat or Republican wants to contain China in the way that Ben is talking about, it would have to be um, in some way closing up to a man who has created an image uh, for himself as very adversarial to the United States and not in our interest. So I don't know. I don't really know what that would look like. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely more hypothetical than anything. But I, I think what I want to sort of put the final question out there, it, there's no debate that China's rising. Um, we've talked about Belt and Road. We've talked about their military prowess. We've talked about their conflicts with India already, um, trade wars. And so I guess the question is, will they pass us in a Thucydides trap style way and how? Because I think my sort of thesis on this is with continued Trumpian foreign policy, isolationism, retrenching from alliance networks, not being a partner in, in the developing parts of the world. It's much more likely that they will. And if I had to say yes or no, it's probably a yes. But with active 
engagement, not necessarily in a military sense, in fact, not in an economic and alliance network sense, we can contain them. And I, the one thing I would add, I think pulling out of Taiwan and Hong Kong and our current alliance structure would be a good way to do that, although that's entirely impossible because of the commitments we've already made. And that'll only happen when that really reaches a boiling point. But I, yeah, the, the real question is, um, with the Thucydides trap, the Thucydides trap, sorry, is will they pass us and will it be militant? And in my opinion, yeah, with Trumpian politics, they will pass us and it won't necessarily be militant, Trumpian foreign policy, but with an engagement style active role, then we really reduce those chances. When you're when you're saying militant, Ben, are you talking about a conventional military clash or is this a new form of war, like you were saying, cybersecurity, economic warfare? Because um, I, yes. I, I would find it, I personally find it hard to believe that the United States and uh, China would engage in an active, direct, conventional military conflict. I agree, it's unlikely, but it's it's. I'm not ruling it out, and I think you're. I think my answer to your question is yes. All of the above is possible. It could be cyber. It could be a full fledged Cold War. Um, that's been put on the table a good, a good deal. Um, but I think just returning to the Thucydides trap format like will they pass us and will it occur through some sort of warfare any of the ways in which you mentioned and and in my opinion no and no given an active foreign policy role from the united states yeah and i think um same as your mic darren can you guys hear me all right yes sir um good was a little worried there for a sec um so i think you know as ben mentioned one of our strong, one of our biggest strengths that China doesn't have is our networks of allies, and that is something that Trump has pulled away from. And if we are going to successfully combat China in the future, those alliances need to be strong and resolute. Um, that's certainly my opinion, and sounds like it was Ben's. Um, and I think. Largely, this is going to be the problem of the next 10, 20, 30 years is what to do about China. So I think it's really good that we have been addressing this now. And it's certainly going to be something worth worthwhile to keep focusing on, and especially during the COVID pandemic. Yeah. And it should be noted that there are some minority voices um, who are taking the more macroeconomic approach, saying that China is going to have diminishing returns in the next 10, 15 years, and maybe we're going to see an actual slowdown without any kind of conflict with the United States and Beijing. Um, so I think that's a more optimistic note, but uh, we'll have to see. China's economy is feeling its its posturing, so hopefully there is some slowdown there. Yeah, and, and to that point, that's something I, I wish I'd mentioned too. There are serious demographic, economic, um, and resource-based constraints in China, that they made that bargain of, of rapid economic growth in exchange for no civil liberties for their people, right? And, and should that economic growth slow, which, as, as Luke pointed out, is expected to by, by many um, economists, then that bargain is really unattractive. Um, and who's to say the people can break it, given the strength of the Communist Party? But it's another element in favor of my thesis that does involve quite a few ifs, which I also need to, to stipulate that there are quite a few ifs and well, if we do that. Uh, but yeah, surprisingly, a little bit optimistic this time. I was going to say, yeah, I think the past few episodes have been a little gloomy. 
exiting the Zoom chat. So I'm glad we can leave on a higher note. I mean, relatively speaking, I, I wouldn't, I'm not an optimist, but yeah. But for the first time, maybe our caption won't be not very optimistic, maybe mildly <laughs> slash somewhat optimistic. We'll see. But as Sam said, the creative. Yeah. But as said, Sam, as Sam said, sorry, this is the preeminent IR dynamic going on and, and what we all intend to be focusing on from a US lens. Um, obviously Russia too, our alliance network, NATO, Latin America, Africa, but this is really that that preeminent great power conflict moving forward. Yep. And I think the onus definitely is placed on leadership. So strong leadership in this in this area is going to be also extremely important. But yeah, I'm glad we we at least set some uh set some optimistic projections um if we can have this strong leadership head in that direction. Yeah. So I think that's all we have for China today, but I'm sure that China will be in the news a lot throughout the summer. So maybe we'll hit another episode. Um in the near future but yeah tune in next week we're gonna try to again be more consistent with our episodes and uh, let us know if you have any feedback awesome thanks everyone